to Future Sox Podcast. I am Dan Santaramita filling in for uh, regular host Mike Rankin alongside James Fox. James, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? Good, good. I'm uh, just excited to see if I can turn this into a total train wreck with Mike gone or if we can uh, put a decent show right? together. <laughs> I, was hope- I was hoping that you were just going to pretend you were Mike and then see if anybody knew. <laughs> right. Did they notice the difference? The lack of uh, Mike, uh, a little, little crappier audio, a little bit of everything else? Yeah. Uh, this brings me back, uh, long, long time listeners will remember when I, I think it was, might've been the first versions of the future Sox podcast or one of the early ones, at least was when, uh, Matt Cassidy has been on recently a few times. Uh, Matt Cassidy and I would host it from the basement of a bar with all the ambient noise and like, they'd be like taking our orders while I'd be on the show. So that was a classic, uh, train wreck there. Um, hopefully it won't be that bad today, but, um, you know, maybe there's something to be said for, uh amateur quality and uh just the the rustic nature of that <laughs> yeah i i don't know I, I think it'll be fine i think we'll be good mike mike's <laughs> mike's spending a lot of time hanging out with Les grobstein so you know he might he probably won't even notice <laughs> all right so we have a lot to talk about though uh on today's show uh there's, there's a decent amount of news even though it's still a relatively inactive part of the off season but on the minor league front, uh, the international signing period is, is coming up. The one that was delayed from July due to the pandemic to January 15 is when these, some of these deals can be made official. Since our most recent podcast, the White Sox have had some pretty big news on that front, um, with Uelke Cespedes uh, set to sign for a couple million dollars. Uh, James, like, what talk us through that deal. How important is it? Uh, what are the Sox getting in Cespedes? So what I've typically said is, I mean, it's obviously – you know, it's, it's good because, you know, because you're signing, you know, players that can help. Now I I understand, you know, some people had some reservations. He is a 22 year old, I believe Cuban outfielder where, you know, most of the teams in this marketplace are signing 16 year olds. You know, we've hashed it out on the show before the White Sox typically have money left over for some of these Cuban guys that are a little bit older because they don't really play in that 16 year old marketplace. So, you know, that could be a little bit frustrating, but if you're not going to do it, you have to land guys like this, I kind of feel like. So, you know, Yowelki, it's it's kind of an interesting case. He's a little bit of a tweener. He he was a, you know, he could play center, but that's not really where he profiled. So he was more of a corner guy, but he didn't really have the power profile. So he was kind of like a tweener. So, you know, he he defects from the Can-Am League when he was like in New Jersey and all of a sudden he he leaves and apparently he's been down at his brother's ranch in Florida and typically when these guys leave Cuba they just eat and hit you know and lift weights basically so he's he's supposedly a lot bigger I mean he's listed at like between 5'7 and 5'9 and like 205 pounds I think when Ben Badler of Baseball America broke the story there was a there was a tweet he had where Cespedes just looks absolutely ripped. So, you know, he is a little bit more advanced than most of these kids. So, you know, if he plays at double A this year, it wouldn't be super surprising. The White Sox lately have sent kids like this to the DSL anyway for like tax purposes, but I feel like he's in the country anyway, like in Florida with, with Yoenis. So I would imagine, you know, once the signing becomes official on Friday, you know, we'll get some indication from Rick Hahn or one of the front office members that, you know, like he is indeed going to play stateside at, at an affiliate. And, you know, he'll just be kind of another guy to follow um, 
throughout the system. MLB Pipeline has him as the number one ranked player in the international signing class. I don't, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that ranking. There's a lot of 16-year-olds with way more upside, um, but he probably is the closest to the majors out of the whole group. Yeah, it seems like it's a pretty high-profile signing, just another Cuban for the White Sox. Uh, I think the interesting thing about uh, Cespedes, and, and we've seen this, I think, in, in one of your write-ups on Future Sox, we basically have, have two kind of big stories on him, and one where you talk about the reported signing and go deep into him, and then one more generally on, on the entire uh, expected international signing class for the White Sox. But um, the thing that, and you kind of touched on this, that, that stands out to me is, is how differing some of the scouting opinions are of him. Like I said, Pipeline's got him number one, and then some other guys are, you know, not as sure. And it's, it's. I think we're going to see this trend throughout a lot of the minor league players, especially younger ones or foreigners, um, like this international signing class, where, you know, the quarantine has basically taken away a year of scouting for a lot of scouts. Um, they're still getting information secondhand from people. But maybe even those scouts aren't, you know, if someone on the ground and in the DR or, or pick your, you know, you know, Arizona for for instructs or whatever. You know, the amount of information for some of these guys may be, uh, you know, a little old and it may be less, there may be less of it. So I think it's interesting to see where different people have these guys. And like, there is kind of a wider range of expectations than there normally would be. I think Cespedes is probably one of the higher four guys of the international class, which is why it's easier to have him pretty high in the rankings. Yeah, I think so. And, and like, so Baseball America stopped ranking. They, they did something like they rank by bonuses now. So I guess $2 million came in right in that like 12, 13, 14 range. So if you look at it on their site, they're not really ranked in order of like how they, how good they think they are. But fan graphs, for example, like a lot of people have asked me about Eric Longenhagen's ranking for him. And Eric is awesome at what he does. And he, you know, he's a friend of the podcast and he's been on before. He has said personally, like he saw him in the Can-Am League. He saw him go three for 18 with a whole ton of strikeouts. And I think he gave them like a 35 future value, right? So look, that doesn't mean that Eric Wagenhagen's right. It just means that's like when he saw him and that's like, you know, his evaluation of him. So, you know, I I think on this one, I think we should probably trust Marco Patti. Now that doesn't mean that he's Luis Robert, but I mean, it's a $2 million signing. I think that's that's part of that was like lost on people is like, you know, it's still only $2 million, right? If he's a fourth outfielder soon, I mean, that's a really good use of a $2 million bonus. So, you know, like we'll see. And I think obviously we'll get more information um, as the week goes on as to like what the organization actually thinks. But yeah, like the, the wide range in scouting reports is interesting, but just keep in mind, like nobody has seen him for, at least a year um, other than the White Sox who Ben Badler said um, went down to Florida and like actually like watched him work out or hit or something recently. So that, that, that's definitely interesting. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how he, he hits the ground running. I, I do wonder with him, how much of it is his last name. I know that's kind of terrible to be like, Oh, you're only good. Cause your, your brother's in the majors, but uh, it certainly paints a picture, you know, it gives you a first impression right away. So, um, that's one thing. Uh, another name we could talk about uh, that's been uh, far less recent in terms of connected to the White Sox, Norhe Vera, who was reported to sign with or agree to a deal with the White Sox back in February. It'll be more than 11 months by the time his deal becomes official. Um, another Cuban. What do we know about uh, Vera? 
So I'm actually more excited about Vera than Cespedes, like just from some of the stuff that I had heard there. He's another just typical projection righty, but he was already throwing like 93, 94, right? So if the stuff ticks up a little more and they can figure out his off-speed stuff, I mean, that's a $1.5 million bonus. I've kind of, you know, placed him in a similar vein to Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist. I mean, it's a similar bonus amount, similar type guy, 20-year-old right-hander with like a ton of projection left, but already has stuff. Um, you know, I think he's going to be in the Canapolis rotation with Dahlquist Thompson and probably Jared Kelly. So he should be stateside right away. Um, I know we're probably going to get to this, but he's, you know, he's probably a top 10 prospect in the system. And, you know, I, I, I think he has, he has a lot of upside. Like I heard, you know, from a, from a White Sox beat writer, la, you know, last year that the, the pitching infrastructure at the Sox, like, so, and I don't know if that's Cooper at the time or the minor league guys that they, you know, they really liked what they saw on video out of Norhe Vera. So obviously like those are team sources. So I mean, what do you expect team sources to say? Um, but they don't usually go out of their way to tell beat writers about international signings. So yeah, it's just another guy to add to the mix. It's just, you know, the people that have followed my history covering this market, I'm just glad that like we actually have players to talk about instead of, you know, not signing a full class. Or or trading away pool money for for nothing. Yeah, no, I know. yeah, it's a full it's a full class of players. So that's one uh, that's one positive. Yeah, I mean, and you you talk you uh, touched on it. We can talk about the rankings. I don't know how much we can really get into it, but Cespedes and Vera, I think I think they're both probably top ten prospects. Like if you look at, especially after Dane Dunning gets traded away and, and all the guys that graduated this year, like Luis Robert, obviously. Michael Kopech is still prospect eligible. Nick Madrigal till probably about May or so. Uh, Garrett Crochet didn't get enough innings to to reach that you know threshold. You look at Andrew Vaughn, Jonathan Seaver, Jared Kelly, Matthew Thompson, Andrew Dahlquist. Like those are the only guys that group of eight I think are the only ones you can compare to Cespedes and Vera. There's a pretty big drop off after that. Where you get into like Micker Adolfo, you know, Gavin Sheets, Blake Rutherford, you know, you'll get in a different group of guys. So, you know, do you put Cespedes and Vera ahead of any of those eight, or are they kind of in that 9 10 range right below them, or do you think they, they slide a little higher? So it's interesting, right? Because it's probably a little bit eye of the beholder, but none of us have seen them. So, so like, I do agree with you. Like, the, the top four is easy because it's still. You know, Vaughn, Kopech, Madrigal, Crochet in some order. And then I think most people would have Kelly five. Um, but then after that, like, I think you could argue for Cespedes at six. You know, it's a position player instead of a pitcher, probably fairly close to the majors, um, you know, with, with power potential and a plus arm plus run. So, I mean, if he's six, I think that's that's fair. And then, like you mentioned, then you have Stever, the high school guys, and Norhe Vera, um, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't, I don't really think any of that group of Rutherford, Berger, Sheets, Gonzalez, any of those type guys, I can't really justify putting those guys over Cespedes or Vera. So it seems like, you know, our top tens, once we get around to it, unless somebody else is traded, seem pretty set. Now, I think that's six through 10. I think a lot of us will have those guys in different orders, but I think just looking at it, like from tiers, I think, yeah, the six through 10 range is probably where both of them belong. 
Yeah, and this is another thing we're missing. I mean, obviously we're dealing with Cespedes and Vera guys we don't know very much about, certainly firsthand we don't know very much about um, or anything really. But when you look at that group below them, like guys like Gonzalez, Sheets, Rutherford, these are guys that you know we didn't really get a lot of new information on this year. I mean, Rutherford seemed to have a good stint in Schaumburg, but that's still kind of not game action. And even then we're getting kind of scant information about it, like since from team sources and stuff. Uh, so I, I do wonder how much these that tier of guys, the kind of upper minors guys that hadn't fully broken through, what where they would be in a regular minor league 2020. Like their stocks probably would have shifted drastically. Like I have a hard time believing they'd still be in that kind of same range because they'd either have another disappointing year. Like a lot of those guys did not have very good years last year or in 2019, I should say. Um, so it's either they break through and figure it out or they're kind of not prospects anymore. So it's certainly an interesting kind of dynamic. And we're going to see it throughout the minors. And I know you've talked about it in terms of trades, like how out of date uh, a lot of you know prospect rankings are because guys, you know, they didn't sit in their in their apartments doing nothing for a year. Right. Like these guys are working out or playing in camps or doing something. You know, maybe some of them did sit around and those are the guys that are going to have their stocks probably fall when they get back into game action uh this year but like there's a lot of variables that we really don't know in terms of ranking guys on top of adding two foreign guys that we've never seen play so well you know i think i think the white Sox like showed it and we talked about it briefly like i'll tell you like the avery weems thing was fascinating to me because so like look i i cover the draft fairly extensively and avery weems was a sixth round senior sign out of arizona you know, your typical, like, struggled as a starter, stayed in school. You know, it's a six-rounder for 10K. That's a guy that throws in your minors for a few years and then either ends up coaching for you or, like, goes and gets, like, a regular job somewhere, like, you know, once the dream ends, right? But instead, he goes to rookie ball, dominates. They change a grip on a slider, and he might have a 70 slider with a plus fastball and project as a you know, a lefty out of the bullpen that could get to the big leagues, you know, within a year and a half and you use him in a trade. And, you know, I've had some pushback when I've mentioned that, like people are like, Oh, so we traded two good prospects for one year of Lance Lynn instead of one. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, but like, that's how it's done. And I think we kind of talked about that. Like if you can turn a six round senior sign into a guy that you can use in a deal to help you win, like that's, you know, that's like one of the, the points, of the draft. That's like one, one of the main reasons behind like scouting and developing and like they actually did it. Right. So like how many other Avery Weems are there out there from teams? I think we saw it with like some of the trade returns where you're like, okay, this doesn't really seem to make any sense. Like this guy's rated at MLB pipeline, like 20 in this system. Like, why would they do that? Well, it's because it's what you just said. Like, we don't know. Nobody was out there. Some of these teams like didn't even allow scouts in. So you know, the changing landscape of of just ranking prospects and the guys that we're going to see on top 100 lists over the next year that weren't before um, is going to be something fascinating for people that actually pay attention to this kind of stuff. Yeah. So this is, and, and, you know, we're throwing all kinds of variables on top of it. Um, so it'll be fascinating 2020 when we have Hopefully a good set of games. I know there's going to be, we'll talk about this later, there's going to be a bit of an altered start to the minor league season already, but um, it looks like they'll actually be able to play, hopefully. And then we'll we'll have a lot of surprises. And, and I wonder how many overreactions we'll see to 
oh my God, this guy who didn't play, you know, A ball is now in double A and hitting, you know, with an 850 OPS or something. And it's like, yeah, well, if he had a normal year last year, it would have been totally normal. So we could see a lot of surprises this year. It'd be very interesting. Um, before we get fully off the international stuff, I do want to uh, bring up one more name. Uh, Oscar Colas. He's like the new kind of uh, unicorn of like White Sox going after a Cuban. They landed Cespedes after we talked about him forever. Oscar Colas, what's the deal with him, James? Yeah, it's the, the international man of mystery. So I think I've said this. I don't know if I said it on our podcast or somebody else's. I was really hoping to kind of be done talking about Oscar Colas so much. But it seems like as White Sox fans, you know, we, we might have to talk about him a lot more because it seems like <clears throat> Oscar Colas might end up waiting until the, the next international period, which doesn't start as of now until January 2022. And I know that seems insane. He's like 22 or 23. Like, why would he push his future off that far? But the problem is like this international period that starts next Friday was supposed to start on July 2nd. And teams had all their commitments for players. Like, they have guys signed. So, you know, Oscar Colas might be able to take, like, 800000 from somebody and get in the system right now. And, hey, maybe you'd even argue that that's the smartest thing to do, right? Just get into a system and then make your money later. But it sounds like for him to get a bonus in the 2 to $3 million range that I think he was looking for, he's going to have to wait and sign next year. So, you know, what does that mean? I think we'd hear about it. You know, I think the White Sox are one of the leading contenders, White Sox, Astros. If he were to commit to the White Sox for 2022, I think we would hear about it fairly soon. And then he could, I think, like go hang out in their Dominican facility and play in backfield games like under their watch or whatever. But he couldn't sign until January 2022. So he wouldn't be able to even play affiliate ball like this year, even for the DSL team. Like it would, So that would be like, you know, in the, after January of 2022. So it's a really weird situation. Major league baseball by doing what they did really screwed over the guys like this, like all the 16 year old types are going to get their money because they, they have deals already. But these guys like from Cuba specifically that need um, like government approval and MLB clearance and all this other stuff, like, yeah, great. Like he's free to sign anywhere, but if teams finite resources are already tied up in other players, and he's kind of screwed. There's like not really much he can do. So his options are he can sign next Friday for very, very little money like left over in somebody's bonus pool, or he can wait and actually get, I guess, closer to what he's worth, theoretically, closer to like the deal Cespedes signed. But he's probably going to have to wait to do that. And the guys that know the most in this part of the industry, Ben Badler, Jesse Sanchez, Kylie McDaniel, VSPN, they're all kind of under the impression that he's going to wait to sign. So Colas is going to be a guy that we're going to probably talk about a lot more on the podcast and uh, write about this year at Future Sox. Yeah, we got it. It's just, it's a never ending pipeline of these like weird signings. I think they're only weird because of the pandemic this year. I think there's always a bit of like mystery around these guys because they're just kind of a name and all of a sudden they're worth seven figures to a team. But uh, in this case, the, the weird, you know, does and this window does he wait? Dynamic has certainly been an, uh, a weird thing to follow. Right. Does he? So let me hear. Let me yeah. Let me point out one more thing then, because of, like what you just said. So, you know, like the Norhe Vera deal was reported back in February because this signing period that starts Friday was supposed to start this past July, right? So, in theory, the White Sox could have signed Norhe Vera and Cespedes 
like this past July and we would have had Cespedes in the system in a normal year and he would have been here and, you know, whatever. Right. And then if the new period was going to start July, 2021, like it was originally supposed to, well then, you know, Oscar Colas waiting until this July isn't really that big of a deal. My guess is if they get all three players somehow, that was their plan all along. And then MLB shifting the periods kind of, like messed with their plan a little bit there and kind of hurt the, you know, the signing capabilities of these kids at the same time. Yeah. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. And this is something we're going to follow for, for years because obviously like Colos could be a year away from signing and then we have to see him play and, and how they progress the system. But uh, I, I do want to ask, uh, you know, you were talking about the international period is I know you have a full write up on future socks uh, with, with names beyond the big three we've been talking about here. Is there anything else you want to mention about this class names or any, any trends that stand out about uh, who the White Sox are expected to sign? So there's a, you know, there's a Dominican third baseman, Victor Quezada for 525K. You know, that's just like a typical international signing. Uh, 525K is a, it's a fairly significant bonus. He's power hitting third baseman. That is one of Marco Patti's things. He likes power now. You know, it hasn't obviously translated like a lot of these guys who we really like that we've talked about that'll be on the back half of our top 30 list. Like most of these guys haven't made it to double a even yet. So, you know, while power is something that he's typically looked for, like a lot of those guys haven't necessarily panned out. So he falls in line there. And then the next signing is manual. Gary Mon is just a, you know, he's a Venezuelan catcher that also has some power and defensive skills. That's 475,000. So, you know, those are your next two big signings after Cespedes and Colas, but those are after Cespedes and Vera, but those guys are just typical. They'll be down in the DSL um, next year playing. And then that's, you know, they're, they're, these guys are really, really far away. All right. So that's, uh, we've talked ourselves to death as far as international signings. Uh, now, now, as far as what the minor league season could look like this year, I know we kind of hinted about um, how it's still going to be a little bit of a weird year. So there was some news that came out that uh, spring training for minor league players is going to be delayed. So as far as I understand, you may can correct me if I'm, I misinterpreted this, but they're going to have, as of now, the plans have major league training, major league baseball's spring training, and the AAA players to accompany them will be relatively normal schedule. And then, but the thing is, they won't let the minor league players report until those guys leave, which will cause a delayed start to double A and below. So we don't know if that, that pushes the season back, the minor league season back maybe a month. That could, could give them a bit more time to, you know, maybe vaccine deployment is at a, a point in the fall where they play in September and when they normally wouldn't and try and get some fans. Uh, James, like, what, what do we think of this? Uh, and how it will affect the minor league season in 2021. So that seems to be the plan. Now it sounds like, you know, if everything goes according to plan and look, (laughs) I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know why we would expect it to, but like, on the other hand, like reading Evan Drellich at the athletic, he basically said like, you know, most players are preparing to start spring training on time because, and obviously like we didn't want to get into this too much, like on the future Sox podcast, but you know, like players want to get paid for 162. They've seen the other leagues do it. Like baseball is a little bit different, obviously. Owners don't really want to pay, you know, 162 without fans. But the way I understand it, like unless there's some sort of government ordinance 
in Arizona and Florida, like banning spring training, like major league baseball doesn't really have any leg to stand on. Like, it's kind of like, okay, like these city, these States are allowing it. Like as of now, like it should start on time, which is weird with the, you know, no free agent signing. And there's basically like no transactions ever, but you know, if that happens, then you are correct. It'll just be major league players in spring training with all of the non-roster invite types plus triple a guys. Right. So, you know, even like say Andrew Vaughn, like if Andrew Vaughn, if they were going to play him in Birmingham this year, I think they would just give him the minor league invite and then he's at spring training with everybody. So look, it doesn't, it's not going to really affect most guys. I think everybody's going to be in camp with the big league team. And then theoretically the big league team breaks and goes to Chicago, triple a starts, and then the other minor league players come to Arizona and they do their spring training then for like a month. And then, yeah, in the Baseball America article, it kind of said low A, high A, double A then could just like go into October. Cause I think, you know what, a lot of, most of the teams are in warm weather cities anyway. So that that's, that's the plan at least. Uh, we'll see how it comes to fruition. And, and it seems like, you know, it, that makes some sense. I think not having everybody there. I mean, those guys don't need to be there from the start anyway, because they don't really do anything until, you know, the big league players are there for a month before the minor league guys start playing games anyway. So I feel like it's not even really that much of a change, but that is the current plan. Yeah. And the minor league season does typically start a few days to like a week, depending on how the the calendar lays out after the major league season. So maybe it only ends up costing them, three weeks or so. I mean, it depends on how, how they exactly they lay it out. Uh, it will be interesting. You know, I think pushing back the schedule has a lot of benefits. Like I talked about, maybe if everything goes well, which I don't know why I would expect it to at this point, but if everything goes well, it's possible we could see fans uh, allowed back into minor league stadiums by the, by the fall, or at least a, a, a small number, which I don't know. I don't know what the viability, I don't want to, I don't want to get too much into the business side of minor league baseball. I don't know what the viability of, opening up the stadium to 25% capacity, whatever does for them or what they'd be able to draw in current conditions. But there, there is some benefit to playing a little bit later. And like I said, most, I think the Midwest league is the only one that's uh, I guess you could call a cold weather league in those. So, and certainly the white Sox wouldn't be affected by that. Birmingham, Winston, Salem, and Kannapolis would be decent enough weather for October to be fine. So, yeah, something certainly to, to look out for. I know we're itching for some minor league baseball so we can like have our own way to evaluate players, whether it be watching them on MALB TV or kind of digging into the numbers or anything. We're kind of starving for some of that, so I'm certainly excited to see some minor league action. Speaking of actual minor league action, though, uh, we did have the instructs, and I know you wanted to bring up uh, some stuff from that around Jared Kelly and, and some others. So what do you got for us, James? Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about like using team sources, right. And team sources obviously have usually nothing but good things to say about their guys. Right. But, you know, digging around a little bit just at other outlets. And then I did talk to some of the, some of the minor league players in the system for the White Sox and just kind of asked around about instructs and what really stood out. And, you know, some of the names, you know, everybody talked about Jake Berger just because he looks like really good and he was, and look, I, I think that's fairly normal, right? Like Jake, if Jake Berger's healthy, he should be better than everybody at Instructs because he's more advanced than everybody. He's like 24, 25 years old now, you know? So it was kind of like, you know, when I was at the alternate site last year and, 
and uh, Nomar Mazara is just like hitting tanks out of the stadium because it's like, oh yeah, that's a big league guy here. You know, it, it just like looks different. But aside from him, um, 2020 second rounder Jared Kelly, I think is the guy that most people talked about. And, you know, from what I had heard, I mean, that's everything as advertised, high 90s heat, plus plus change. And they said that even even the breaking ball now is is developing even further. So he's a guy who I think is is a top 100 guy, like really soon. I mean, Jared Kelly was a top 20 draft prospect for a reason, and they got him in the second round. So he, th- that, he was the pitcher who a lot of buzz was around. There's obviously, we've talked about Avery Weems already. He was a guy that people like there. Cade McClure is a guy, you know, six rounder out of Louisville, geez, years ago now, like 2017. His stuff has ticked up a bit, supposedly, to where he was, there was some smoke that he might actually get taken in the Rule 5 draft that he was like an actual option for teams. And that obviously didn't happen, but I mean, he's probably in double A AA or triple A to start the year, you know? So there's another guy there. And then, you know, just some of the younger guys that we have on the back half of our list that maybe not a lot of people know about the name that, that I keep hearing is Jose Rodriguez. And, you know, he, all he did was hit in the AZL and he, he was really good. And he's, it's probably a second base profile long-term. Um, but the bat plays, I mean, he hit, immediately in the DSL he hit you know nine homers or something in the AZL last year and I think he was going to be stateside you know playing well stateside full season I should say I think he was going to be in Kannapolis this past year I think I think he's just a guy who you know all of a sudden could be in double a and you know people could be like who the hell is this guy you know because we haven't seen him kind of like what you have been talking about on the podcast so far so I think he he's a guy to watch. And then, you know, just like the typical, like the exit velocity readings on DJ Gladney and Brian Ramos and those type of guys. But, you know, with a corner profile, those guys are going to have to really hit. Whereas Jose Rodriguez could probably play short or second. So, you know, it's just like kind of a profile that the White Sox haven't really had. So that that's a guy to keep an eye on. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You mentioned that the White Sox have not had a profile like that. Like even just hearing you mention Rodriguez might slide over to second, like Rodriguez's bat, at least the the brief bits we've seen of it, just from from his AZL stint in 2019, like he had nine home runs and 19 extra base hits in 44 games. Uh, you know his, his ISO was above 200. Like the guy absolutely mashed and and did so with a 293 batting average. Now his contact rate was a bit, you know, he struck out a decent amount, but like the White Sox have not had power hitting middle infield prospects, or even honestly. I guess other than Tim Anderson, even in the major leagues, haven't had a lot of power hitters up the middle in recent years. So, you know, you look at what Rodriguez profiles as, it's certainly a unique profile in the system. There's plenty of bats that profile similarly to him. Uh, you know, like we talk about, um, you know, like Brian Ramos or Benjamin Bailey, uh, DJ Gladney, you mentioned some of these guys. Like these are guys with similar bats, but different positions. You know, they don't play middle infield. Maybe Ramos might, but like, you look at Rodriguez as a middle infield guy. That's that's a really big thing. So if he's going to have, a, you know, if he had a breakout year behind closed doors, that would be a really big deal uh, for the White Sox system. And actually, I'm going to take this opportunity to, to segue into our next topic. I think is kind of works with this. You know, we were talking about this uh, ahead of the show, like some of the trades we've seen around the majors: uh, Francisco Lindor to the Mets, Yu Darvish and Blake Snell to the Padres. These are established major leaguers. 
with some control left. You know, they're not all one-year deals like you saw with, with the White Sox getting Lance Lynn. But look at these guys, like how many prospects they brought in return. And do the White Sox have what it takes to make those deals? And, and James, your basic premise when you're suggesting this, despite the young guys in the system that the White Sox don't have, uh, the depth and quality in the system in the right places to make these deals. So do you want to explain uh, why you don't think the White Sox could have made these trades? Yeah. So, so it's not even that they couldn't, right? Cause I think they could because they have Michael Kopech and they have Andrew Vaughn and they have Garrett Crochet and all these other guys that everybody would cringe if they were traded. Right. But that's kind of all they have right now. And I know that that like sounds a little bit bad, but, like, I think the White Sox have one of the best systems in baseball still, but it's still super top heavy. And then even as we talked about, like, after you get outside the top 10, it's your Blake Rutherfords and Luis Gonzalez and guys like that. And, like, they just don't have a ton of value on the trade market, right? Like, 24-year-old tweener outfielders right now who, look, like, could go to Charlotte and really take off and, like, help the White Sox. But that doesn't mean that you can just package a bunch of those guys you know, to get like something of impact, right? And if you were to look at these trades, what got traded? High impact, like center field shortstop types that were signed on the international market or drafted as high schoolers. The White Sox haven't drafted enough prep players. They, they've taken pitchers lately. And I think, you know, we've praised them for that commitment, but they just, they don't have guys on the positional side. Even their, you know, their international strategy that we've talked about, like, you know, like 20-year-old Cubans, like, yeah, they're, they they corner the market on those types of guys. But when you don't have an influx of, you know, guys for over a million-dollar bonuses from the Dominican Republic and from Venezuela, like, you just don't have that much to trade. So trades like that are really tough for the White Sox to make unless you want to give up something that's super important. And I think you have people out there who, you know, if Michael Kopech or Andrew Vaughn were traded for a Blake Snell, I think there's a large segment of White Sox fans that would just be happy with that because you add Blake Snell and they want to win the world series. And like, I understand that thinking, but when you operate the way that the White Sox do, I don't think it's so easy to just discard, you know, Andrew Vaughn's and Michael Kopech's who are top 20 prospects in baseball. Like you're talking about, you know, and obviously like, you know, we, we get into the business part of the sport here. I mean, that's six to seven years of control on a guy that, you know, could be some of the best of their position in the sport. So I, I just think that's where it's like tough to make trades like that, right? Like could the White Sox turn around and trade for, you know, like a Joe Musgrove from the Pirates or Sonny Gray or somebody and patch some of their stuff together? Yeah, sure. I think they could make a deal like that. But the the big deals for the Blake Snells of the world and guys like that, it's just not really possible right now because – you know, there was no minor league baseball last year for the White Sox players to like show what they were worth to other teams. And the White Sox just, you know, they haven't done that great of a job of adding stuff to their system that other teams typically covet in trades like this. Yeah. And, and you look at, is what we were talking about earlier with, with where would a uh, Cespedes and Vera rank. And you realize once you get past that top, I guess, eight or 10, if you want to count those guys now, there was a big drop off and those are not guys that are going to be premium pieces uh, in a trade like this. So you're only dealing from some, like I think Jonathan Seaver could be someone they'd be willing to trade and has some value. I think the same goes for the recent high school picks after that, you're not likely to trade, you know, much more. And, and if you look at like, just even to compare the trades one for one, you know, look at the Lindor deal, right? Like 
uh, Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez are two major league experienced middle infielders under the age of 25. You know, you could sub in Nick Magical for one of those. I don't know if the White Sox have another. And the other two guys were a high school uh, pitcher drafted in the second round in 2019 and a high school pitcher drafted in the second round in 2020. The White Sox have those. So you can get like three quarters of the way into the trade and you probably would, I mean, hypothetically, the Indians probably don't make this deal, but like you could, you'd be happy to send uh, Magical for Lindor, but they don't have that other position player. And the same thing like with the Darvish deal, like they don't have maybe a year or two from now, you have Rodriguez, Bailey, Ramos, Gladney, some of those guys step into this tier we're talking about of, you know, young prospects with upside and play premium positions. But the White Sox just have, they have a gap right in the system. And, and some of that's because they've been trading guys away. Like Dane Dunning's been traded away. Still Walker, who knows if he'll be anything, but traded away. Like they started to trade some of that depth that they had a couple years ago. And some of it's graduated into the system. And, you know, they're, they're waiting for some of these guys to age into that, that valuable tier. Uh, and it might happen. It just doesn't, the White Sox don't have it now. I actually could see the White Sox being able to make a trade uh, like this in a year or two, but not right now. Yeah, a year or two for sure. And I do think, like, look, I mean, we, we've talked about it. Like, every year when we cover the draft and, you know, they give a $2 million over slot bonus to a college guy, like a Gavin Sheets or a Steel Walker, and it's like, oh, yeah, they're quick to the majors and – you know, they got to hit tool and this and that. Right. But then when stuff goes wrong, what happens? Those college guys are 24 or 25, right? They have one bad year at Winston-Salem and they get held back and then they get hurt. And then there's a pandemic that nobody expected. And then you got 24, 25 year old prospects that, that nobody really, you know, wants quite frankly. Right. I mean, look at a guy like Bryce Bush. Okay. So Bryce Bush, the Sox drafted 33rd round, paid him over slot. Everybody knows the Bryce Bush story by now. But Bryce Bush tears up rookie ball. Then he goes to Kannapolis and he struggles, right? Well, look, Bryce Bush could go to Winston this year and get his career back on track, and he's still like, I don't even know if Bryce Bush is 21 years old yet. So, like, that guy has way more trade value probably than any of those other, like, older college guys that I've mentioned because he's 21. So it is, you know... It's just like a philosophical shift that I hope takes place. I mean, the White Sox have done it on the pitching side. They've added a ton of high-impact young high school pitching. They need to start doing it with the position players. And, you know, that's to have like a base in your system and you want as many good players as possible. But when you're like trying to win World Series every year, like you need players to trade. And, you know, prep players are kind of where it's at, like in trades. Those are Those are the type of guys who – you know, they get traded when they're in the, you know, 50 to 150 range on publications, top 100 lists, you know, and then they, you know, they're, they turn into something more. Well, the White Sox don't really have that. So, you know, you have your Bryce Bushes and your Jose Rodriguez's and those guys, and hopefully they turn into guys good enough to be traded to help you win a world series. But, you know, it's just, they just don't right now between all the injuries in the system, how they've prioritized, um, and no baseball last year. They're, they're in kind of a tough spot as far as like, you know, trading for talent to help the 2021 team. 
Yeah, so it's, it's something we're going to watch over the next few years and see if the White Sox can develop these guys to make these moves. I mean, this is kind of our bread and butter here. It's like, what, what do the Sox have in the system? How are they coming along? And, and ultimately, what are they, they sending away now? Because they've gone from, from sellers to buyers. So this is going to be something we're going to be talking about probably, and I guess hopefully for the next uh, you know five years, right? So sticking in, uh, in off-season news, it's been mostly quiet in the last few weeks in the White Sox front, but... Uh, what are we expecting? You know, the big name that's been tossed around on is Liam Hendricks. The White Sox do need a closer. James, do we expect the White Sox to make a move for Hendricks? Or is there another option on the back of the bullpen? Yeah, so I think they're trying. I mean, I just wrote about it over at Southside Sox. I mean, it would be a big upgrade, I think. But I understand the apprehension about not paying big money for closers, right? And I don't, this isn't going to be like in a row, this Chapman deal. This is one of the spots where the White Sox do feel comfortable, though, playing at the top of the market, right? Like, we always joke, like, that they don't they don't play at the top of the market in free agency. Well, they do at catcher and relief pitcher, it seems. But, you know, so if this is, like, a three-year deal in the $40 million range with an option, like, I think Liam Hendricks is, you know, he's been really good. And he's one of these guys who was, like, a little bit of a late bloomer. Like, he was a, you know, a pretty bad starter, and he was not even average in middle relief, and his stuff ticked up in a in a high leverage role, figured out some stuff about his career to the point where he's going to get paid for the first time here. Um, And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think he has, you know, he has less of a track record, but he has less like mileage on his arm too. So look, I think like signing good players is a good thing. Like if Liam Hendricks is their closer, I think that's solid. But you know, if, if I knew for sure that if they went cheaper, they would add in other areas, I might lean towards doing that instead. I just, you know, with the history of this organization, I don't know for sure that missing out on Hendricks means that that money would definitely get reallocated elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, there are, there are other guys, I mean, Brad hands out there, you might get a little bit too left-handed in the back end of your bullpen. If you added a Brad hand, but there's, um, there's Archie Bradley I mean Colome who they kind of let walk, like is obviously still out there too. And you have Kirby Yates from the Padres and, uh, Trevor Rosenthal from the Padres. So it is a very, you know, there, there's a lot of relief pitching talent out on the market if they happen to miss on Hendricks. But, you know, all indications are that that's their kind of top target right now. And whenever Hendricks signs, whether it's with the White Sox or not, I guess I would expect that's when, like, the next moves, you know, start to happen. I would think that if Hendricks signs somewhere, the rest of the relief pitching would start would, would start to come off the board fairly fairly quickly, I would imagine. Yeah, it's certainly the the position um, that maybe even starting pitching where the White Sox still have some some needs, right? Whether you know the relief pitching, obviously you need a closer, and I think they have some of the depth in hand already. Bullpen was actually pretty good last year. Starting rotation depth, you know, anything else that the White Sox need? Yeah, I think they'll add more pitching. I mean, look, I don't think anybody thinks they're done, and. Like, after they added Lynn and Eaton, I think people kind of thought, like, myself included, like, okay, they're going to add a couple more guys here and, like, try to get this thing done. And I had talked to a beat writer who thought that they would have the closer situation figured out, like, that next week, you know, kind of indicating that Hendricks, you know, and those talks have obviously dragged on, you know, whether that's him wanting a four-year deal or whatever, I don't really know. But I do think they'll add another starter, you know, whether that's, Jose Quintana or like a Garrett Richards, like in free agency or whether they trade for somebody, there have been some rumblings that they're still involved in like the starting pitcher trade market, which is like Sonny Gray, 
Joe Musgrove, guys like that. But, you know, then we're back to, you know, you're, you're trading from a limited prospect base again, then instead of just spending money when there's a market loaded with guys who could probably help. Right. So there's all this stuff out there with new pitching coach, Ethan Katz and some of the stuff he's doing with Dylan Cease and with Michael Kopech. And they seem to have high hopes for these guys. I'd be very surprised if Michael Kopech was on the team to start the season. And that's not even just because of service time issues. It's just, you know, he, he doesn't have the innings, but he's going to be on a limited innings count. So like starting him on the big league team and shutting him down early doesn't really make that much sense. So, you know, if, if you think Dylan Cease is your four, you need a five. If he's your five, you probably need a four. So my guess is they add one veteran on a major league deal that's fairly significant. And then you have a ton of like, you know, flyer type guys on minor league deals in camp. And then you just like kind of sort it all out that way. But I do think we're going to see a lot of Cease and Kopech like eventually as the season goes on. Yeah, and I'm excited to see how those guys develop this year. I think Kopech for sure is someone we saw like that one spring training outing of him where he was hitting triple digits regularly. Granted, it was out of the bullpen. He was probably, you know, really piped up on adrenaline and everything. So who knows what, what he would look like over a full season. But that's, you know, I'm certainly excited to see what he can do. It's a kind of a guy that I think, yeah, people have maybe forgotten about, right? I mean, there, there's obviously like a non-zero chance that he's like still awesome. Like he, he could still be, you know, even the best pitcher that they have, right? And it sounds a little bit crazy that he could be better than Lucas Chialito, but he, he could be. Um, so, you know, you have him and Cease there. You might not need any more pitching, but nobody's ever had enough pitching, right? And you can't go into a season as you know, and just be like, oh yeah, we have Dylan Cease and Ronaldo and, and Kopech's coming. Like, they have to add more pitching, and I think they will do so because you can never have enough. Um, but I do think we could get to a point a year from now, you know, where we're kind of like laughing about there being consternation over them, like needing to sign like some veteran fourth starter when their rotation's full with, you know, some homegrown guys. Yeah, that that's certainly the the most optimistic view. I think it's it's certainly possible. I think the only risk, and I, I know you're basically hinting at this, is the durability. Not necessarily that they would get hurt, but like Kopech's not going to throw 150 innings this year, uh, and and Dylan Cease probably isn't going to throw 200 innings this year. So, like, you're going to need someone to fill in those those games, and maybe it's someone like. You know, Jonathan Stever probably gets a few more shots unless he like has a really terrible year or gets hurt. Like maybe Garrett Crochet gives you a few starts if they, you know, try and develop him that way. Like there's certainly in-house options that can give you some fill-in starts. Now, if if you only get like say 250 innings at a Kopech and Cease, and I don't know, that might even be on the high end. I, I'm not. I don't know. We honestly don't know how a lot of pitchers are going to react to, to what 2020 did to them. And Kopech certainly didn't pitch at all, right? The wear and tear and the durability and the endurance of these guys is going to be a big question mark for, for pretty much everybody. Like, we could see, like, Dallas Keuchel reach August and get tired. He hasn't pitched a full year in three years now, right? So, right. So there's certainly, like, a need for innings. Even if everyone's good, I don't see, like, there's no – I don't see the best-case scenario for Kopech. Like you, like you said, he could be the best starter on the team. It's – within range of what his stuff can do for him. I don't see any scenario in which he's able to go 150 innings even. Oh, and no. that's not even a full starter, right? So Yeah, I don't even like, I don't know if he can go 120. 
Right. No, that's why I, I say a hundred is probably like a reasonable peak. Um, and even then, like you're factoring in that he'll pitch in the minors for some of that probably too. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, even if everyone is as good as you think, you're probably going to need the innings anyway. And I don't know that you're going to get a full fill-in from what you have in-house. They probably need somebody. No, you're right. I think it's one of the reasons why Lance Lynn is here, and we kind of talked about that. But it's also one of the reasons why Dane Dunning was part of the trade return, right? I mean, Dane Dunning comes up. He kind of surprises people. You know, he was a guy that we probably wouldn't have seen if it was a typical season, but it wasn't a typical season. So it's like, you know, they kind of threw Dane Dunning out there and they're like, all right, let's see what you have, kid. And he, you know, he impressed and he wore down down the stretch. And look, like I think Dane Dunning, it's going to be a pretty good major league starter for a while. But Dane Dunning wasn't ready to give the White Sox 160, 165 innings in 2021 on a team that's trying to win a Central and win a World Series potentially. So yeah, like you are trading six years of the future, you know, I was okay with that trade because you're basically swapping out Lance Lynn for Dane Dunning, right? So, you know, like Dane Dunning just isn't at a, at a stage right now where he's capable of giving you 200 innings, which is what they need. And Dane Dunning is, you know, like 25 years old already. So that's where like a trade like that makes some sense. And I do think, you know, there's probably another veteran coming at some point to insulate themselves a little bit. Yeah. It was starting to be uh something to watch throughout the year. Uh, and certainly from our perspective, we saw it in, in 2020, how all the young pitchers come up, came up and contributed. And that was kind of fun for us considering there was no minor league season. Uh, it'll kind of be more of the same with, with a lot of similar guys a year further along in their development. Um, so I think that that does it for us. Is James, is there anything else you wanted to uh, talk about or promote or tease uh, on the show? No, I think that's about it. I mean, I, you know, I interviewed a, uh, Tyler Osick, which is, you know, one of the White Sox late round picks from 2019 recently. He, he you know, he was a, another senior sign, but he, he played at central Florida. Uh, he was in the first base, like corner type log jam with the White Sox and kind of realized like there's all these young guys that they really like. And then there's also Gavin Sheets and Andrew Vaughn, you know, so it was a little bit tough for him, but he could really hit. So he transitioned to catcher. And he's probably going to be the full-time catcher at Kannapolis this year. It's a really interesting conversation. So, you know, I, I'll have something on that within the next, like, 10 days or so on the website. It's an interesting story. His dad played in the majors for a while. So, you know, that's just like another guy, you know, far away in the system that most people probably haven't heard about um, that has a little bit of an interesting story. Yeah, and I know we got a few more things planned uh, a little further down the road in terms of um... – February, March, getting into kind of season preview. I think we're going to do a kind of system-wide look at different positions and, and some various things as we get closer to the season. We have to do our top 30 in February. So Yeah, of course. Which is, see, unless they trade a bunch more guys, and then it's going to be a lot tougher on us. But <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, the top 30 is going to be really weird for us this time around because like, at least with the, the mid-season one, we did it without – you know, really a season. We had a bunch of guys in the majors that, that moved and like the, the draft picks came in, but this time around, we're basically just adding, we're adding, I guess we're adding Cespedes and Vera losing Dunning and, and some of the graduates like Luis Robert and Cody Hoyer and Matt Foster. But well, that middle, you know, 11 to 20 something range is going to be really hard because nothing has changed for most of those guys. So we'll see if, uh, we can dig up some up-to-date information to move things around. Yep. It's going to look, everybody's lists are going to look a lot different from each other's. So 
that'll be fun. Which could be fun. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a preview of the next month or two for Future Socks. Uh, keep an eye on us. Uh, we'll have more podcasts and everything. I'm sure Mike will return soon. Uh, so yeah, James, thanks for joining me. This is fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was good. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone.